Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, Your Excellency, Chris Seed, High Commissioner for New Zealand, um, guests, colleagues and friends, welcome to tonight's presentation by National Library of Australia Fellow, Mr Paul Diamond, Curator Maori at the National Library of New Zealand. Paul's lecture, Narratives of Identity, New Perspectives, the Library's Maori Collections, comes as Paul approaches the end of his three-month fellowship here at the library and draws together some of the many threads he's explored as he has navigated the library's rich collections to find, document, interpret and ponder from multiple angles documents relating to Māori life and culture found here in the National Library of Australia's collections. And for those who don't know me, I'm Murray-Louise Ayres, and it's my honour to be the Director-General of this library. Now, this particular fellowship brings with it so many questions relating to Māori heritage. And for we Australians, questions relating to Australian Indigenous heritage, as it appears in our collections, with all the discoveries, gaps, silences, and frankly, discomfort that comes with that. Over the last few months, Paul and I have been in several public spaces in which welcomes to country and acknowledgements of Indigenous ownership of and care for the land on which we meet tonight have been expressed. I've spoken to Paul about how I felt more than 10 years ago at an archives conference in Wellington when I realised that a wonderful young Indigenous archivist from Victoria was not going to be able to reply in language to a beautiful speech in Māori from his New Zealand colleague because he had no language. It was devastating and I will never forget the visceral shock of that moment. So when Ngunnawal elder Paul House gave a most eloquent welcome to country in language at a recent exhibition opening here at the library, and shortly afterwards, the Prime Minister, Mr Turnbull, spoke in language to acknowledge Indigenous owners and elders at another major exhibition opening down at the National Gallery of Australia. Well, I suppose you could say that these had huge emotional impact for me and I know that for many others. So with that in mind, I offer, alas, in English only, my most sincere thanks to those who have cared for this beautiful land I acknowledge their elders, past and present, and the young elders-to-be who are with us tonight. Now, I'd now like to ask Paul um, to invite us into the wonderful world of his research over the last three months. At the end of Paul's talk, we will have time for some questions and then some more refreshments. But for now, uh, over to Paul. Thank you, Paul. Koreo e naro he kākono i ruia mai i rangiātia, tihei mauri ora. Tuatahi, nā mate, nā mate o te wā, haere, haere, haere atura, haere ki Hawaiki nui, Hawaiki roa, Hawaiki pāma mao ki te honu i wairua, āpiti honu, tātai honu, rātou te hunga mate ki a rātou, āpiti honu, tātai honu, tātou te hungoru ki a tātou katoa. Kā mihi ki nā tangata whenua o te rohi nei, te wing nanoa, Ka mihi 
ki nga kaumātua nga kuia i mua, i nae nei, a nga tau ki te heke mai. Ka mahi hoki ki te whenua nei, a rā hei e whenua iwe takitaki i mua, i nae nei, moa ki tono atu. Koutou rā, koe whakarau e ka mai, kei raro e te maru o te whare ātāhua nei, tēnā koutou katoa. Hai Commissioner, tēnā koe, oku hoa mahi, kei te whare pukapuka nei, tēnā koutou katoa, nga whānau mai Aotearoa, ki ora koutou katoa, whānau mai Ahitereiria nei, tēnā koutou katoa. Good evening. Thank you, Mari Louise. And just to tell you what I've just said there, began with a little proverb, whakatauki, that says, I shall not be lost, the seed that was sown from Rangiatia, known as a homeland of Māori. I've acknowledged those who've passed on, beyond the veil, as we say in Māori, and bringing us back to the realm of the living, where we are. And I've acknowledged the iwi, the tangata whenua, the people of the land here. And a real highlight, there's been so many highlights of my time here in Canberra, but one highlight was being at the filming of the Q&A show at Parliament House recently and being able to hear from Aboriginal leaders, young and not so young, a reminder that this is Aboriginal land, always was Aboriginal land and always will be Aboriginal land. And just to conclude these um, introductory remarks, just really want to acknowledge the many, many people here at the Library and beyond in Canberra and my New Zealand whānau here who've, who've helped to make this time so amazing and memorable. So thank you. Thanks without end. So last weekend I was taken to the lookout at Mount Pleasant where I was told you can take in a number of Canberra's phallic monuments, including the impressive <laughs> Cook Memorial Jet. I mention this because it's not possible to spend time looking at the Nan Cavell collection without coming across Captain James Cook. It has been very interesting to be at the National Library of Australia in the lead-up to the 250th anniversary of Cook's first voyage, which falls next year in 2018. Now, as part of my research, I found the catalogue for the exhibition about Cook held at New Zealand House in London in June 1956. Reading this catalogue text with 2017 eyes, it's striking how the indigenous people Cook encountered are either bit players or absent altogether. The exhibition catalogue is arranged according to themes in roughly chronological order, religion, settlement, government, navy and army, and then commerce. So these five themes foreground European views and experiences, but also encapsulate the forces brought to bear on Māori and Aotearoa New Zealand. In this view of history, Māori have things done to them, like having the Christian religion brought to them by Samuel Marsden, whereas we now know there's evidence that Marsden was invited by the chiefs of the northern tribes. Another example, Māori have land purchased from them, suggesting a straightforward, uncomplicated transaction. After the missionaries, the settlers arrived, as the catalogue tells us, brave and adventurous, these men and women pioneered New Zealand. And then we have government and the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. And then in the Army and Navy section, we get a hint that not everything was straightforward. The young colony depended on the two services for protection against both any Māoris who were hostile to European settlement and any other attempts to challenge British dominion. But the catalogue tells us it all worked out all right in the end. The difficult campaigns of the Māori Wars of 1845 to 47 and 1860 to 68 fought with strategy and skill and the bravery shown by both imperial troops and Māori warriors made an outstanding chapter in British military history. Then we're on to the commerce theme and Māori disappear altogether. 
As well as illustrating the historiography and the museology of the 1950s, the catalogue is a good introduction to how Rex Nan Cavell's collection has traditionally been seen. In the words of the National Library of Australian News from February 1992, the collection is a full record of the 18th and 19th century encounters which had led to the European conquest of the Pacific. In the last page of that catalogue for the London exhibition, Nan Cavell's name heads the list of those acknowledged as lending or giving items for the exhibition. But in 1956, when that exhibition happened, negotiations between Nan Cavell and the Australian government about his collection were at a very delicate stage. Even though Nan Cavell had started sending his collection to the National Library of Australia from 1949, there'd been a possibility that the collection, or the New Zealand part of it, might go to New Zealand. But after New Zealand's bid for a knighthood for Nan Cavell in the 1953 Coronation Honours List was unsuccessful, there was no prospect of it going to New Zealand. A very protracted, complex series of negotiations followed, culminating in an agreement in 1959, brokered in large part due to the efforts of Director General Sir Harold White, who you can see on the left in this photo, and Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies, and the agreement was that Nankerville would sell the collection to the Commonwealth of Australia for £70,000, which was a fraction of its um, value at that time. So who was this enigmatic man known by the time he died in 1977 as Sir Rex de Charabank Nan Cavell? One difficulty with trying to explain who this man was that key elements of his biography, when scrutinised, turn out to be false. For example, a Danish honour, the Order of the Dinnerbrog, which Nan Cavell said he was awarded by the Danish king in 1935, and this is noted on the sign by the Nan Cavell Room on Level 1 in this building, was opened in 1974. No evidence has ever been found to assert Nankervell's assertion that he received this award, leading historians to regard his claim as spurious. But we do know that he was born Reginald Nankervell, so Nankervell is one word, in 1898 at Christchurch in New Zealand. When he enlisted for the Great War, he travelled to England. He wasn't, as he claimed, gassed at the Battle of Messines, and his rank was private, not captain. After he was demobilised from the army, Nankavell stayed in England, and following the war, Nankavell continued collecting books and pictures while working as a marshal to the High Court judges and the Court of Assizes. In 1925, he joined the staff of the Redfern Gallery in London's Mayfair Gallery Ghetto. The gallery specialised in works by staff and students of the major London art schools, and Nankavell became the managing director in 1931. And under his direction, the gallery became phenomenally successful, and in large part this was due to his skill at spotting talent and buying up while the market was low. Here he is with his business partner, Harry Tatlock Miller, who was an expat Australian. But as uh, Nankervell's fellow gallerist, John Casman, said in an interview in the Financial Times last year, all artists do is produce the work. The dealer has to create the allure. And I think this quote is key to understanding how gallerists work and why Nankervell was so successful. But in his case, the allure extended to his own life. This perhaps wasn't such unusual behaviour. John Casman was born John Kay and favoured exotic foreign titles, styling himself Count Casman for a while. But the profits from Nankervell's work as a gallerist funded his own collecting. This focused on European voyages to the Pacific. And from the 1920s, he'd been collecting books, manuscripts, maps, paintings, prints and other items relating to the exploration of the Pacific and the early British settlement of Australia and New Zealand. 
1988, more than a decade after Nankervell's death, an exhibition called Paradise Possessed was mounted here at the National Library, showcasing items from his vast collection of more than 15,000 items. In an essay from the exhibition catalogue, which had the title Self-Made, Towards a Life of Rex Nankervell, John Thompson, who was a dire director of Australian collections here at the National Library, acutely summarised Nankervell's process of reinvention. In Nankervell, we see perhaps the archetypal outsider, illegitimate, homosexual, self-educated, an Antipodean colonial who, pressing his nose to the window, eventually gained access to the larger, more marvellous world from which he must have felt himself to be excluded. In this photo, you can see Nankervell second from the left there, and that's his partner of more than 40 years, um, Mizuni Nuari from Algeria. I suspect Thompson's essay is behind a story I'd heard before I came to Canberra that the reason Nankervell didn't get a New Zealand knighthood was that in the 1950s, no way was a gay man going to get a knighthood from the New Zealand government. When I asked my colleague, Dr Oliver Stead, who wrote his PhD about Nankervell about this, he said he doubted that was right, but that actually it was a little bit more complicated. In 1953, when there was still a possibility that Nankavell might get a New Zealand knighthood, correspondence from Sir Harold White reveals how the Australian government persisted with its own efforts to obtain the collection. And as Oliver commented in his thesis, Menzies, for one, was taking the whole thing with a grain of salt. He had probably guessed that Holland, that's Sid Holland, New Zealand's Prime Minister in the 50s, would be unlikely to accede to Nankavell's demands, let alone visit him at the Redfern Gallery. This note reveals a tone of mockery Perhaps, perhaps directed at Nankavell's homosexuality, which contributed to the collector's anxiety complex about returning to the Antipodes. In London, he could get away with his faintly bizarre persona, even become successful by it, but in the colonies, he would still be an object of ridicule, perhaps worse. Safe in London, in possession of valuable cultural property, important to the maintenance of cultural pride, oh, sorry, colonial pride, Nankavell could afford to let them wait and meet his terms. Yet Menzies' continued tolerant indulgence of Nankavell's many audacities was a major factor in Australia's eventual success. So I think about that quote every morning when I cycle past the statue of um, Menzies <laughs> on the lake. <laughs> Wherever the collection was held, it seems clear that Nankavell had definite ideas about its future use. As my former colleague Marion Minson put it in her essay for the Encounter with Eden exhibition, which toured New Zealand in 1990, Nankavell set down his primary purpose, which was to ensure that the collection he had accumulated and which he was to continue developing until the time of his death would be shared with the peoples of the Australian continent and the islands of New Zealand and the Pacific. And as Oliver has noted, Nankavell's ability to inquire into the precise nature of each object as he acquired it was limited. As a collector, he was a man of action rather than scholarship, and he was content to leave the precise authentication of identity to others in fact, he encouraged this, seeing his collecting as a service to scholarship rather than as a scholarly end in itself. As I explained to my library colleagues in a talk several weeks ago, I began my research here by reading these typed catalogues prepared by Nankavell before he sent his collection from London to Canberra. I did this to identify Māori materials and select uh, items to look at more closely, but occasionally I'd come across these little notes from Nankavell about other items, like one... Uh, with the entry for these two unidentified portraits in oil. And this is what he wrote. He said, When brought to me, the dealer had the frames which were made in Wellington and description of the portraits. He had brought them to me from the country, unframed for convenience. 
When he returned to the country to collect the frames and paper off the backs, they had been destroyed. His recollection of the man in the portrait as he was painted showing the coast of Cook Strait and the ship in which he sailed to Wellington. The lady is obviously his wife. Included an iron case collection in the hope that one day they may be recognised. So isn't it a wonderful thing that the National Library of Australia has digitised these portraits, making it possible for people with New Zealand connections, wherever they are, to see them and perhaps one day identify the sitters? I've read that Nankavell initially planned to separate the collection into the New Zealand and the other components, but it's fortunate that it was kept together. The people recorded in this collection live lives that span the different countries. Missionaries like Samuel Marsden were dispatching vigorous men and women across the Pacific, in New Zealand, we think of his work there, setting up the first European settlement, preaching the, so-called, the first so-called sermon, but it's important to remember the broader context for his work. Marsden was based in Parramatta in New South Wales, which regarded New Zealand as a colonial outpost for about 50 years. And constitutionally, New Zealand began as an extension of New South Wales from June 1839, which was its status when the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, and we became a separate colony in 1841. In 2017, while Nan Cavell's physical collection is cared for here in Canberra, people have opportunities to see and experience it in ways he could only have dreamed of. Here he is with some of the leather-bound albums of photos of his collection, which would have been his way to keep track of the treasures in a pre-computer age after he'd sent the material from London to Canberra. Here's an example of a page from one of the albums. What's interesting about this is that it shows how Nankavell was keeping track of items in other collections. In this case, the portrait at the top is of the Māori chiefs Hungiheka and Waikato, who travelled to England with the missionary Thomas Kendall in 1820. And it's part of a collection of photos of items in the possession of the Methodist Missionary Society in London. A different portrait of Hungiheka and Waikato with Kendall is one of the most famous items cared for by the Alexander Turnbull Library, where I work. This came from the Church Missionary Society in the late 1930s. And while I was in the reading room last week, I checked the catalogue for the Church Missionary Society archives, which are now at the University of London, to see if they still had the other portrait, which Nan Cavell had his eye on, and it's still there. While in England with Kendall, Hongi Hika and Waikasal visited Cambridge University to work on a grammar and vocabulary of the language of New Zealand. This book established the basic written form of the Māori language. Hongi Hika and Waikato are regarded and described as Kendall's teachers, and this introduces an important point about the Māori language material in the Nan Cavell and other collections I've been researching. In particular, it points to why there's so much rich material, part of what's been described as the biggest collection of written material in any Indigenous language. The Nan Cavell collection includes several copies of this engraving of the Reverend James Buller, a Wesleyan missionary who arrived in New Zealand in April uh, 1836. Buller and his wife were based in Mangungu in the Hokianga Harbour on the northwest coast of the North Island. So if you imagine the North Island of New Zealand very close to the top, to um, Te Reringa Wairua, at the top on the left, just about the last harbour is this one, which actually got referred to as a river, and you'll sort of see why it sort of is so sort of narrow and windy at the end that actually was referred to as the Hokianga River. And here's a um, uh, sort of where it says forest, if you can see that in the sort of in the centre of this is where the mission was. This is an image from the Nankavell collection of the Hokianga Harbour from the time. The Bullers joined fellow missionaries and their families together with Māori who worked at the mission as servants and workmen. 
James Buller then set about his first work, as he wrote much later in a memoir, learning the language of the people. This was no easy task. Neither lexicon nor grammar was at hand. It had been reduced to writing, and some portions of the scriptures, with a few manuals, had been translated and printed. Not having a good ear, I found it hard to get hold of a barbarous tongue. With the aid of translations and by daily intercourse with the natives, I managed to prepare a grammar and a vocabulary for my own use. Ere long, I was able to take some part in school instruction. And at the end of a year, Buller made his first attempt at preaching in Māori. The vocabulary Buller mentioned remained hidden until 2013, when it emerged as part of the manuscripts collection offered for sale by an Auckland collector. And the Māori vocabulary was among the items purchased by the Turnbull Library. The vocabulary is a numbered list of 920 words in the New Zealand language, as Māori was then known, and their English translations. Added words on some lines and unnumbered lines means there's about a thousand words listed in this little book. And if the lexicon dates from Buller's time in the Hokianga, it was compiled between April 1836 to February 1839. And so the first Māori dictionary was published a little bit later in 1844. And Buller's lexicon reminds us that the missionaries who arrived in New Zealand across different denominations made a decision to evangelise among Māori in the Māori language. This meant that, like Buller, they had to learn the language and enter into the Māori world in a way that I think was less common from what I've read for Europeans here. And it, thinking about this makes me think of Greg Denning's writing about beaches as a metaphor, where he wrote, where minds meet is a beach of sorts. It is a place in between, a lyman, a middle ground, where to share that space one has to give a little, where everything is new by being somehow shared, where everything is in translation, where we see ourselves reflected in somebody else's otherness. Tiara, the New Zealand online encyclopedia, tells us that by 1842, most Māori aged between 10 and 30 could read and write their own language, which was actually a higher literacy rate than for non-Māori at that time in New Zealand. This also means that the missionaries played a huge role in recording the Māori language, as the church historian John Owens noted in a lecture looking specifically at Wesleyan missionaries in Māori in the early 19th century. And Owens wrote, The missionaries have been criticised for destroying aspects of Māori culture, but in the long perspective, missionaries and then the churches have done more to preserve than destroy. Libraries and archives like this one and the Turnbull Library have continued this work to preserve Māori language and culture. And here at the National, uh, at the NAN, the National Library of Australia, the Nan Cavell collection isn't the only place I found Māori material. The collection of Sir John Alexander Ferguson, another expat New Zealander, has the only copies of some printed items in Māori known to exist anywhere. For example, this leaflet from 1854 by the Church Missionary Society, Missionary Thomas Samuel Grace, advising Māori not to sell their land and using quotes from the scriptures there to um, reinforce his point. There's also more recent material, such as this Māori translation of the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, published by the Seventh-day Adventist Church in New South Wales. I can't see this on any New Zealand library catalogues, but it could be held by the church in New Zealand. During my fellowship, I actually returned to New Zealand to chair a session about the Waikato Land Wars at the Wanaka Festival near Queenstown. The speakers were our former Prime Minister Jim Bolger on the left there, um, whose government negotiated a settlement with the Waikato tribes, and the historian Vincent O'Malley, who's just written a major survey of the wars. In his book, Vincent mentioned the oath of allegiance to the Queen, which Māori were required to sign if they wanted to stay in Auckland during the wars. 
And there are two copies of the oath known to exist. It's Heki Tuturu in Māori. There's one here in the Nankavel collection and one at the Turnbull Library. But I'd never actually seen it until I um, saw it in the files here. And as well as printed material, there's, of course, manuscript material. The Nankavel collection includes uh, a number of different collections of Māori manuscript material, but one I've looked at quite closely is a collection of around 30 letters written by Māori teachers to another missionary, the Reverend Richard Taylor. This photo was taken around 1855 when Taylor, who's at the centre, and his son Basil on the left were in London together with Hoani Wudemu Hipango, a tribal leader and teacher who was a friend and associate of Taylor's. Reading the letters, I was able to test out the idea of how they could speak to a second language learner like me 170 years after they were written. This letter was written from an unidentified person from Patia on the west coast of the North Island in August 1846. The writer refers to various scriptures and how he, well, it probably definitely was a he, I don't think any of the teachers were women at that stage, how he hadn't measured up to their standards. Now, the last page of the letter in the collection, which is possibly, as you can see, possibly not the last page of the letter, had this phrase near the end of the page, which stopped me in my tracks. So I'm reading from, yeah, the last sort of five, five or so lines. Waihoki ko toku nāko e kore e taia te kōwaki i nā wakawainga e hoa, ko mōhiao e haraten nei ao i te kainga pūmō mōku. So my rough translation of that is, Furthermore, I know in my heart that I can't escape judgment, friend. I know that this world is not a permanent home for me. So even without knowing the context, I can tell that that person was very troubled. So these examples of printed and written Māori, like Buller's lexicon, are snapshots of the New Zealand language at particular points in its development. They also illustrate how material in the archives and libraries can assist with the revival of Te Reo Māori, the Māori language which is an opportunity to acknowledge a very important symposium where the idea for this fellowship really originated. Hidden Gems, the role of libraries and archives in cultural revitalisation, was held at the State Library of New South Wales in August 2013. At the symposium, I met Margie Byrne, the Director General of Australian Collections and Reader Services here at the library, and there she is beside me in that photo there. Um, and she mentioned there was a lot of Māori language material in the Nankavel and other collections, and said, why don't you apply for one of these fellowships? So that made me start thinking about the potential of language material in libraries and archives as a resource for language retention and renewal. And now in New Zealand, the revitalisation has tended to rely on so-called native speakers. Um, and then you put people like me alongside them and that's how we'd, we'd sort of learn to transfer the language. But over time, there are fewer of those speakers around. And so we really need to be looking to other resources, such as the language material in archives and libraries. Now, just before I came to Canberra, I was working on a book for the New Zealand Cartoon Archive, which is part of the Turnbull Library, about how Māori have been represented in editorial cartoons. And this is an example of one of the ones I've, I've looked at from the 1920s. Actually, from a magazine called Aussie, which was a... <laughs> one of the conclusions of this project was while there have been a small number of Māori cartoonists, most have been Pākehā, and all cartoons appear in Pākehā-controlled media. So Pākehā, the New Zealand word for European or non-Māori. As a result, cartoons tend to reveal more about how Pākehā saw Māori and Pākehā identity than about how Māori saw themselves. And similarly with the Nankavel collection, while there is a significant Indigenous presence, it tells us more about the imperial conquering gaze. Even if this is about how Indigenous people were seen by Europeans, I still argue it's revealing and valuable. 
Now, the collection has been described as icons of cultural identity, and I think this applies to Indigenous peoples as well. Oliver Stead wrote that at best, Nankavell's collecting was emblematic rather than analytical. Oliver wrote, he collected works of art as emblematic trophies of a self-initiated and largely self-directed pilgrimage into the history of European art at the margins of empire. But in doing so, he made available a vast treasure trove of pictorial material in which others could discover and rediscover their own narratives of identity. So that's where I got the title of tonight's talk. I believe this phrase is key to understanding Nankavell's collection and why it intrigues people over time. Every viewer and researcher can find their own narratives of identity in the collection. And spending time looking at different versions of images in the collections brought home to me how images were reproduced and transmitted between New Zealand and Europe. For example, an image of the martyrdom of Kiriopa and Manihira. This was based on the story of the Manihira and Kiriopa, who died after being shot as they approached the village of a tribal enemy when seeking peace. They were both martyred at Tūrangi in the central North Island in 1847. Later, their former adversaries created a mission base which, uh, where many became Christians. So the image in the Nankavell collection shows how the story was manipulated and simplified to fit a template of Christian martyrdom. It appeared alongside other images of Māori and other heathen peoples in those different countries, China, Northwest America, West Africa, India, as well as New Zealand. Um, in this book, Illustrations of Missionary Scenes, published in Germany in 1852, and inside it actually has the byline, An Offering to Youth. Uh, and the New Zealand art historian Leonard Bell has written that the illustrations reveal the processes of propaganda 19th century style. He argues that martyrdom pictures like this one tended to enjoy the greatest popularity when the church was most militant. So the presence of this image in a Protestant document would reflect the militancy and vigorous evangelising of the church missionary society in New Zealand. Bell mentions a calico print version of one of the other illustrations published by the Working Men's Educational Union about 1852. The Nankavell collection has 12 of these. This would have been the way that images were used for presentations like this in a pre-PowerPoint age. So, returning to that 1956 exhibition in London, one of the items in the, uh, the Navy and Army section was a watercolour portrait of Tekuha, a chief from the Naitirangi tribe who was known as Tekuka by his own people. This was painted by a soldier artist turned collector, Horatio Gordon Robley. The painting introduces the idea of portraiture, a key theme in Nankavell's collection. One of the reasons Nankavell collected portraits was for this 1974 book, Portraits of the Famous and Infamous Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, 1492 to 1970. Or as Oliver Stead put it, a grandiose monument to the chaos of Nankavell's mind. <laughs> but getting back to Robley, he's significant because of the nature of his interest in Māori portraiture. He also introduces two areas of real strength in the Nankavell collection, the New Zealand land wars, formerly known as the Māori Wars, and tattooing, a theme which, of course, doesn't just relate to New Zealand material in the collection. And here's the point in the talk where I need to give a little bit of a, a viewer audience discretion warning. Some of the images in this next part of the talk may be disturbing, uh, but I hope you'll understand why I'm showing them to you, because they help illustrate a curatorial dilemma that I'm going to lay out for you. Robley's collections are problematic, as he did his research using real heads. 
Robley was in New Zealand from 1864 to 1866 and fought with the British Army at the Battle of Gate Pa in Tauranga. He was also an artist and recorded scenes like this one called Shell Wound, held by Te Papa, our National Museum in Wellington. So what it's actually showing you is a decapitated head, and it was the cause of a complaint from a Māori librarian in 2015. And in his reply, the Māori curator said that after review among museum staff, it was concluded that the image was neither graphic in nature, nor is it in any way gratuitous, being almost certainly based on an earlier sketch from the field by Robley, and quite probably something that Robley encountered during his service. And the curator went on to say, after careful consideration, we determined that the image doesn't breach public standards of decency, or any way fall within the more extreme category of restricted materials. We believe there's a real public interest in providing access to heritage collections such as this for all New Zealanders, and we don't exclude Māori from that public interest. Indeed, Māori deserve to have increased and, wherever possible, direct access to all heritage collection items of and about Māori. I hope that you can understand the rationale for approving this image for public online dissemination, even if you personally disapprove of it. After returning to England and retiring from the army in 1887, Robley began collecting preserved, tattooed Māori heads, known as toimoko. He regarded the heads as important sources of information about tattooing, which at that time wasn't widely practised, at least for men. Robley wanted the New Zealand government to buy the heads for £1,000, but this was declined on the advice of Māori politician Sir James Carroll, who said that its presence would offend relatives. Instead, Robley sold the collection to the National Museum at New York for £3,000. Fast forward to 2014, and the collection of heads and other human remains was returned by the American Museum of Natural History to Te Papa. And I'm just going to quickly show you what that looked like. So if you've ever um, been involved with a, a, a Māori funeral, a tangi, um, you would have recognised 
what was happening there. The, um, the tūpāpaku, the, as we call human um, bodies and remains and things, kōiwi and the preserved heads were being um, brought back to the marae at Te Papa, our National Museum, and it really much, the whole format of a tangi was used, a tangihanga, which means crying, was the, was the name for a Māori funeral. So those items are kept in a closed vault at Te Papa where they are stored until they can be returned to the related tribes who often decide to bury them. Robley's collection of photos, paintings and drawings of his toimoku were purchased by Nan Cavell. Similar material is held in other collections, raising questions for the institutions. As Michael Richards noted in his essay in the 1998 Paradise Possessed publication, the scrapbooks and albums assembled by Robley in the years after the land wars are among the most extraordinary and distressing items in the Nan Cavell collection. No vision of Eden, these drawings and photographs of the tattooed heads of Māori people, dead and alive, severed and connected, remind us of the violence of those years and of the incredible ability of people to turn almost anything into a talisman, a curio and finally a commodity. Robley used his sketches and photos of his collection in his book Moko, or Māori Tattooing, published in 1896. When the New Zealand Electronic Tech Centre in Wellington decided to digitise this book in 2007, it consulted widely about how it should be made available. It received a range of responses from Māori, but decided to present the text with all associated images except those depicting mokumokai, or human remains. And this was from their consultation report. They said, although it was felt that there were good arguments for presenting moko or Māori tattooing in its entirety, namely to retain the integrity of the book and in the interest of scholarship, it was also felt that by making the mokomokai depictions available without express permission of the descendant whānau or family of those tūpuna, or ancestors, whose remains appeared in those images would be disrespectful. In contrast, we felt that presenting the images of moko people and of the designs were less likely to offend and more likely to inform. And it was interesting to read in that report that a tāmoko, a tattoo artist, Rangi Kipa, did not recommend digitisation as Māori should retain their rights to mātauranga Māori, Māori knowledge, and access by non-Māori should be limited. He felt that widespread dissemination of moko designs would lead others to profit from it. Seeing the images of Robley's heads here in Canberra has exercised my mind. The Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford has a collection of copies of the photographs and there is also a set at the Turnbull Library, and we also have some of Robley's artwork. The photos that we hold, including two digitised images, can only be viewed on site in our reading rooms. Some of the artwork images are available online, as is the case here. One thing that occurred to me uh, was to think about the differences in Māori agency and different images of tattooing in the National Library of Australia collections. For example, the exquisite image of Te Pehi Kupe, painted by Mr J. Sylvester of Liverpool when the chief visited England in 1826, and we're told that Te Pehi Kupe was very particular that his tattoo be represented correctly. In contrast, while it may be self-evident, it's still significant, I think, that the people represented by Robley had no say over their inclusion in his study. And last week, when I was looking at the image of a thigh tattoo traced from a piece of skin in Robley's collection, and he had two pieces of um, thigh skin, it prompted me for the first time in my life to Google lampshades made from human skin. While there is evidence that the Nazi regime did keep examples of tattoos, the infamous stories of lampshades made from human skin appear to be apocryphal. But my Googling led to a phrase that was new to me, anthropodermic, yeah, anthropodermic 
bibliopagy, the technical term for books bound in human skin. There are more examples of this than I'd realised, and as an article in the Harvard Law Record noted, many of the examples of human book bindings are voluntary. A person expressed a desire that his or her skin be used posthumously for bookbinding. A curator at the Langdall Law Library, which holds a book apparently bound in human skin, prefers that the book be reviewed as a memento mori, an object kept as a reminder of the inevitability of death, rather than as a sideshow curiosity. I think these comments are instructive for thinking through how to handle and make available Robley's images. Their status as representations of human remains places an onus on libraries and archives to carefully consider how staff and researchers interact with them. Against this, we, consider the feedback, we, we can consider the feedback from my colleague at Te Papa, who argued for the public interest in providing access to heritage collections. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I think there needs to be a discussion, perhaps across different institutions. And just to give you an idea about how, just how complex the politics surrounding Tōmoko are, between 2007 and 2009, one of New Zealand's senior painters, Shane Cotton, from the Ngāpuhi tribe, used Robley's heads in his artwork. The paintings were in a series called Tradition, History and Incidents, which actually is the, taken from the name of the 10th chapter in Robley's book, and featured the toimoko floating, coloured and distorted. When he was asked about the heads, Cotton said that most of them were connected to Robley and the picture of him sitting in front of his collection. And this is from an interview and a talk at the Christchurch Art Gallery. He said, it's a really odd picture, but my position is that in a way what he did was good because it kept a kind of record. But you know, when I remade this image, I didn't take a position on it. I was interested in the image and the way it was captured, and I just wanted to represent it, to represent the heads in a surreal, unknown state and remove them from that original position. So, to get us out of that, and for a bit of levity, <laughs> here's an image of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge when they visited New Zealand in 2014. It's a reminder that the art of tattooing, if it was dormant in Robley's time, it's certainly not the case now. But just to finish, I want to go back to James Buller in the Hokianga. He was using his lexicon to prepare to leave the mission and preach in a place called Pakanai, in a different part of the Hokianga Harbour. So, you probably can't see this, but Pakanai is... Um, just there. So it looks over to here. The, uh, the entrance of the Hokianga Harbour has this magnificent sand, bar, uh, sand hill on one side. Um... And when I spoke about the lexicon in a talk in 2014, I mentioned a comment by a historian in New Zealand, Aroha Harris, who said that the history she was going to write was determined the day she was born. I doubted this was the case for my own career, but as a descendant of the Taimana, or Diamond family, who came from Pakanai and the Hukyanga, it was a strange experience to be talking about a lexicon owned by a man who may well have preached to some of my Diamond ancestors in Pakanai in the years before the treaty was signed. So, of course, that also meant I was really keen to see the images of Pakanai in the Nankavel collection. There's this lithograph from 1838 titled Village of Pakuni, River Hukyanga. In my relation, the art historian Joe Diamond has written that the image raises many questions. Like, what is the nature of the discussions between the European men and the women on the left of this picture? Prostitution or a marriage proposal? And last week, it was just... Wonderful to be able to see this watercolour view of Pakanai and the entrance to the Hukyanga Harbour, painted by Augustus Earle in 1827. 
But like the other image, it also raises questions. Francis Pound, a New Zealand art historian, wrote about this in 1982 and said, for whom does the pointing figure point? In this painting, the pointer has its back to what it points out. It does not point then for itself, nor does it point for the European figure who does not look at it. We may never know the answer to these and other questions about Nan Cavell's collection, which, like its creator, can be enigmatic. But just as Nan Cavell used his life as a means to establish his own identity, his collection remains potent as a resource for others to explore their own identities. That includes Māori and others interested in Māori history, who will be able to have better access to the collections of the National Library of Australia as part of the results of this fellowship and the ongoing relationship and connections between our two countries and libraries. And I think this is in keeping with a quote from an exhibition catalogue from the early 1990s. Nan Cavell's collection was in effect based on the premise that future generations would find what mattered to them, however unimportant it might seem to 20th century eyes, providing the material was preserved and made accessible. Gilda. Thank you, our guests. Um, now, before we open up for questions, I just want to convey how wonderful it's been for us to have Paul working with us and how glad we are that the strong friendship and collaboration between the National Libraries of Australia and New Zealand made Paul's time with us possible. Paul's been a wonderful colleague and during his time here, he's soaked up the cultural life that Canberra has to offer tell you later about one of those phallic symbols, Paul. Um, he's also been a terrific mentor to our young Indigenous staff, especially in the lead-up to the recent anniversary of the 1967 referendum, which, of course, was what the Q&A session was about. He gave us a fantastic lecture for staff recently um, on his research, but also on how the Turnbull Library and its Maori collections work at the National Library of New Zealand, which is quite different to us here. And, and I know that, that long-term long -term relationships have been forged over that time. Ever the optimist, I hope we can arrange a similar fellowship for one of our own staff across the ditch in the future. Now, we'll open up for questions and then there'll be another opportunity to chat over refreshments. But because we're recording tonight's lecture, may I ask you to raise your hand and wait until the microphone is with you before you ask your question. Um, and I know it's a big room. Don't be shy about asking questions and you've got another opportunity afterwards. So do I see an opening hand out there? Robin, always reliable to ask the first question. <laughs> Paul, it's um, wonderful to hear about our wonderful collections, but also about the, the kind of issues and perceptions and complications, really, 
of handling this kind of material respectfully. And I'm wondering what responsibilities we have as a nation, but as a national library, holding this kind of material to properly inform the public when we display it, when we digitise it. What, what things do we need to bring to these collections in order to make them respectfully accessible, not just digitised, so to speak? Yeah, it's a it is a complicated question, but I think, I mean, being aware is the, is the first thing to, to ask. And now, because of this really lovely unfolding relationship, which, you know, didn't begin with me, there's been lots, there's been quite a trail of Kiwis who've been over here and, and looked at the collections over here. Um, you know, so to have a dialogue and ask. But actually one thing to mention is that, uh, you know, um, as I think tonight illustrated, there's big differences between the indigenous peoples in the two countries. And you don't, um, I think I've got across the message that there's a real issue among Sung Māori about human remains. That's a very, very sensitive area. But we don't have the same uh, issue as I understand it that, that gets talked about here, about representations of people who've died. So the disclaimers that you see on the website here and in, in galleries and things, that's not an issue. So I would, that's one thing I'd say, is to be careful to differentiate um, between Māori and Indigenous people here, because I think we have different tikanga sort of processes going on. Um, but I really, when these things come up in, at home, it's really just about getting together and having a talk. And so that means across that big bit of water for us, doesn't it? Um, but you see, I, this has really made me think and I don't have a straightforward answer, and I'm going to have to go back and have a think about how we handle some of that material I, I spoke to you about. And I noticed that, you know, that curator at Te Papa may have said there was a strong public interest in that image being made available, but I noticed that Te Papa hasn't made any of the other images of Robley's heads available. So he did say public decency, you see, and there's a kind of a... That's always a... Whether you're Māori, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, that's always an issue with things like human remains. There's, there's always that line... You know, we've got photos of dead German soldiers that we are very careful about how they are pre presented online, or they're not. You know, so I think it's just having a having a dialogue. But that was one thing I would say that I have noticed, and I'd noticed it before I came here, that that there is a sort of a blanket blanket statement to Māori and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about representations of people who've passed on. That's not the case for us, but we do have this other other issue. <laughs> Oh, and hello, it's all right, sorry. I've got the mic at the moment. Hi. Thank you very much, Paul. That was a really fascinating talk. Um, I'm interested from the, of the perspective of language and how you mentioned that um, you're looking at, uh, at written materials of Maori, whereas in New Zealand, Maori has generally been taught more by direct contact, immersion-type um, experiences, whereas from Aboriginal Australian languages, many of them are having to be reconstructed through archival materials. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find that an interesting difference. And I'm just wondering if you think that might feed into Maori language and Maori teaching, um, if that's made more widely available. The material in archives and yeah. libraries. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they've always been there. And, um, and they, th there's been a few sort of books that have looked at them, but they haven't really tended to be used much as a sort of a teaching, learning resource. Now, it's not straightforward to take the Māori of the 1840s, 50s and 60s and just read it. And as a historian colleague of mine said, in Māori oratory, Māori often take great pride in only the people they want to understand what they're saying, getting it. And, <laughs> and, and I think you can kind of see that in the letters, where there's a lot of metaphor and 
context that's not, not sort of obvious. But I, I really was struck by that little phrase, you know, when I made myself read these heavy-duty scriptural letters uh, in the reading room. And I just thought, this poor person, you know, and, and it was quite beautiful, actually, the, well, in a poignant, sad sort of way, about how they expressed, about how they felt. And I thought, yeah, there is, you can connect with these, this writing. Um, there's a project... We digitised some letters. There was a project going on when I arrived at the library in 2011 to digitise Māori language material, and we've had these letters that were taken from two settlements that were destroyed during the Taranaki Wars, and they were in Māori, and they have ended up being incredibly rare because they're between Māori. Most letters in Māori are to, like, Richard Taylor, a European, but these were between Māori, and um, they've been described as some of the jewels of our collection. So we thought, oh, well, we'll digitise these. And then we spoke about them at a... Um, uh, an archive symposium about how wonderful we were doing this. And we got really told off by this person. He said, well, have you talked to the tribes? What do they think about this? And so my boss then said to me, well, we can't put these online until you give me an assurance that you've talked to the communities. But, of course, you get into this feedback loop because you say, well, what about these letters? And they go, well, what letters? And I go, well, I can't show them to you. And they're, they're actually a little bit confusing. And, but we've been working with a language revitalisation group in Taranaki where these letters come from. And they... Um, have done this amazing thing. They've done a pilot project to transcribe a set of the letters with their language experts, and then they've made a, a fantastic digital learning resource that they're going to take out to the marae and work with them to try and work out more about these letters. So there needs to be a sort of a transcription stage in the middle. That's one of the keys to using these. You can't just look at it and figure it all out by looking at it. You have to sort of transcribing. I could probably have a good go at transcribing, and then the translation would take more probably expertise than I've got. But, you know, it would be great, you see, in this digital age to do some sort of digital crowdsourcing. Because remember, nearly a fifth of us live over here. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the person with the knowledge about these letters might be in Perth or Brisbane. You know, so, but if, if it's digitally available, but I just, you just have to resolve this kind of feedback loop where you've got a boss who says, well, until you say that the community's happy about this, but what if the community's in Brisbane and they can't see it? But um, they're working that through, and we're lucky that there's this language group who, we're, who are not the same as consulting with iwi, but they're brokering for us relationships with the iwi. So, yeah, I reckon there's, there's lots of potential, and so it's interesting to look at how the word lists and things are being used here. Mm. Paul, um, thank you very much for that talk. Look, I think what I was most interested in is the fact that you've said if we've got a problem, we'll sit down and we'll talk. And I think that's a really clinching issue we've got in Australia. If I want to talk to someone about a First Nation issue, who am I talking to? I feel like people in Australia might sometimes feel reluctant to engage with Indigenous material because they don't know how to and they feel like they might put a foot wrong. Um, in your experience, how do you think people who are not from First Nations experiences connect with people who are? Yeah, uh, that is a difficult... It's a hard question to answer, really, because I guess it's, it's different in every context. And, you know, one of the things... This is the longest time I've spent in Australia, and, and what really has come home to me is the implications of the vastness of the size of this country and the complexity that sort of flows on from that. I sort of knew that, but I didn't really understand it. Well, it was until you, Murray Lee, said to me that, you know, everyone conceivably might come through Wellington one day and visit the National Library, but it's not really the case. 
that everyone in Broome or Catherine will trot along to the National Library in Canberra at some stage. You know, it just, it's less likely because of the factor of the ge geography. But, you know, I'd, I'd look at... There, there are some good um, uh, exemplar sort of templates to look at and learn from. You know, when we were in Sydney, we were told about the Rio Tinto-funded research into the language resources at um, the State Library of New South Wales, the Mitchell Library. You know, I think just looking at... Um, how they went about things, talking to Michael Walsh, the people involved in that. And, you know, it depends on what sort of field you're, you're talking about. Um, I reckon you can go a long way by looking at that. And I sort of, well, it is kind of like shamelessly stealing good ideas, but, you know, finding out about good, respectful models for engagement and, and just finding out, doing a bit of homework and research and finding out who are the people. And, and, it, and it won't necessarily be straightforward, um, it will be complex, but I think it's, it is actually beholden on, on us as researchers and curators to, to sort of do a bit of the legwork beforehand, to sort of do a bit of research. But, you know, even from my little knowledge of what's going on over here, there's, there's all sorts of good um, examples to have a look at and see if they could be helpful. Mm. You said in uh, an earlier answer that there's no um, easy thing to be reading 19th century language materials. Uh, we know that other Pacific languages, like Tahitian have lost an enormous percentage of their uh, once rich vocabulary. To what extent is, is contemporary Maori a, a, a limited code and not really uh, uh, fully serviceable as a, as a working language? Māori's in a really interesting um, state phase at the moment because um, some language experts, we have these uh, language academies at, at some of our um, inst uh, universities in the, that are involved in research in language, and we read a presentation um, last year by some of their experts, and they said that um, all of the written Māori at the moment is being produced in social media, online. And the implications of that for an institution like us, is uh, the National Library, is extraordinary, because we can't collect Facebook or Twitter or all these things easily. And it kind of explains why, when I was a judge for the New Zealand Book Awards, we had so much trouble finding Māori language um, materials. This is a weird situation in New Zealand. You've got a minority, it is only a minority of children being educated and immersed in education. So there's all these resources being produced for them by the Ministry of Education. And then the kids kind of leave at 17 and there's nothing for them. But there, there is a lot apparently happening on, um, on social media. But you know, it may be a bit ephemeral. There was, um, it was very fa uh, popular to transliterate, so ahitereidia for Australia, or, but um, that's now not so favoured. Um, but no, I think it's got pretty good, pretty good utility. I used to wonder myself as a learner, you know, how can you express things? But you can, you really can. And I mean, sometimes it, it adopts things. Um, but it's still in a vulnerable state. I, I don't know if people here kind of look at, look at us and think that, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, it's okay, it's not. It's, it's in a very, very uh, vulnerable state because the, the sort of everyday language, this sort of language, the chatting and the calf language is, is hard. Uh, uh, that's the weakest. We're at risk of it sort of being a ceremonial language that's just sort of used at tangihunga and, and um, whaikōrero on ceremonial occasions. But no, I think it's, it's, it's good. But I think this technological thing... I mean, the exciting thing about that is it means that perhaps there are these domains of people who are able to express what's important to them about boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever it is in their, in their language, but, but goodness knows how we're going to have a record of that. Mm. 
I think that's a real challenge for collecting institutions. Well, I think we might draw the um, formal proceedings to uh, to a close, and um, that was throwing down a big gauntlet in terms of the importance of collecting digital something that actually then two national libraries do work closely on. Um, but this that particular issue is not one that I have ever thought of, and you've just thrown us a whole new problem. Thanks very much, Paul. <laughs> Um, look, I just wanted to kind of really finish by saying that, um, again, that it's been fantastic having Paul working on the Nan Cavell collection. The Nan Cavell collection is one of our three great foundational collections. And while it throws up many more questions than it can answer, as did Nan Cavell himself, I guess this is the whole point about collectors, is that they are gathering... Um, for an unknown future research cohort. And for that, we are incredibly grateful to Nan Cavill and all the other collectors who have helped us. But similarly, our research fellowships do the same thing. We see their long tail. After 25 years of these research fellowships, we can see the way that the three months spent here deeply immersed in our collections can play out over time. So in 25 years, Paul, you and I have got a date. <laughs> uh, please join me in thanking Paul and come and have a, um, more refreshments outside.